Welcome to the Hope Talks podcast with Grayson Willis and Pastor Margaret Michael, where you'll hear inspiring stories that are filled with hope and good news in Jesus Christ. You can also search for our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcast, and TuneIn. Welcome to today's broadcast of Hope Talks. I'm Pastor Margaret Michael. And I'm Grayson Willis. Thanks for joining us today. And today we're joined by John Corser. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. It's a great day. John, we always like to have a little conversation about ice cream. We both love ice cream, and we love to hear the recommendations and what other people love. So do you like ice cream? I do like ice cream. Do you have a favorite? I do have a favorite. My favorite is black raspberry. Oh, that's my dad's favorite, too. And it is good. Do you have a certain brand or place you'd like to go to get that? Recently, the food lines in the area have started stocking a ice cream brand, Tillamook. It's mm. from Oregon, I think. And that is very good ice cream. Wow. Very good ice cream. Well, I'll have to look at that, and I may have to get a box of that and take it to my dad. That makes his day when I walk in with black raspberry ice cream. And Grayson, has it changed? No, just vanilla. 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 I like uh, vanilla. Vanilla is probably my second choice. Yeah. I like all kinds of ice cream, but it has to have something crunchy in it. Mm. So, yeah. And there is some grape nut ice cream in the community in February. So I won't say exactly where that's at. Well, ice cream is <laughs> frozy, so, I mean, some of it has a little crunch. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's called, uh, what would that be, a freezer burned? We don't like that. <laughs> No, I don't like ice crystals in my ice cream. No, no, no. no, no, no. So, anyway. John, if you would just start out telling us a little bit about where you're from and about how you grew up. I am originally from a little town in western New York, uh, Middleport, New York. I grew up there, um, and I was there my whole childhood, my young adult age, uh, years. And uh, the only time I was not there was when I went to college. I went for a year out to North Central College in Chicago and played football out there. And I left after a year, and I came back to New York. And then there was a thing that was called the draft lottery. Mm. And my lucky number was number 30. Mm. So I was going to the Vietnam War. And then uh, I decided that I did not want to go to the Army so I joined the Air Force with two of my other friends that had low numbers. Mm-hmm. So I ended up fighting the Vietnam War in England and Montana. Duty specs were I was a nuclear weapon security officer. And that's what I spent the early 70s, 71 through 75. So you kind of took part, but you were a long distance from the... Yes. Yeah. Yes. The uh, biggest thing that happened when I was in England was the terrorist attack at the Olympics Mm. in Munich. They had us all get ready to go to Turkey in case we had to, but that never happened. Yeah. Never never came. Yeah. Well, uh, we certainly want to share your experience in the Air Force and getting drafted and what that was like, but uh, just to back up a little bit, did you grow up in church? Did you grow up in a Christian home? No, I did not. I did not. It was basically Christmas and Easter. You know, for my family, and there was no no real belief system or anything, but uh, is f- from my parents or anything. So growing yeah. up, no, I did not. So when did that happen for you? When did you first um, get introduced to the person of Jesus? 
I think I was very um, involved in Boy Scouts growing up, and uh, and I always had a uh, tremendous appreciation for nature in the outdoors, and uh, I could see the beauty there, and it never, you know, I thought that it came from somewhere, and it was all arranged to be beautiful and, and you know, appealing, but I never put the two together seriously. Mm-hmm. I didn't come to the Lord until the early 80s. It was after I'd been married for six years. And my wife was a believer, and she had a lot of people praying for me in the church that she attended. And uh, I, I accepted Jesus at a Bill Gothard conference mm. in uh, Rochester, New York, in 1982. How'd your, so you come in, and really, you it's kind of a clean slate. Like, you didn't have a lot of foundation. Right. So what was that like? Um, as a young married man, now um, you've accepted Jesus. Like, were there things that you just realized, hey, this needs to change? This is, what was that like coming from no foundation? Because I grew up with a foundation. So when I came to Christ, I had that, I had a knowledge mm-hmm. of Scripture and what it was all about. But what, can you speak to a little bit? I had in, you know, previous different times, you know, odd different times. I had read the Bible, mm. and it seemed like it was just words, stories, things like that. But once I came to Christ, and then I read the Bible, and it made sense mm. to me, if yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, it, right. it seemed to be clearer what was being, you know, conveyed in the Word. And it was, you know, I was just a, a young Christian. I was pretty much like a sponge, mm. you know. Um, I did everything I could to find out what it was about, and, and I did it basically the like a textbook, you know, trying to learn, you know, everything I could. That sounds like a great attitude and desire, and certainly I think the Lord has a way of, you know, making things clear to us. As you said, as you were reading, it just made sense to you, and and you just had a hunger, it sounds like, to learn all you could and to study and understand. So that's uh, exciting to hear. You mentioned uh, about getting drafted in 1971 and serving in the Air Force during the time of the Vietnam War in England. And you also talked about the terrorist attack in Munich. And um, so just any of the experience that you want to share from your time in the service? It was pretty much unlike anything that I had ever experienced. If anybody is my age or that's similar, they know what was going on in the early 70s, you know, the the music and, uh, you know, the drugs and everything else that were going on. And uh, England seemed to be a, a central place for that. I mean, there was so much music and so much going on and that's what I gravitated to is the music end of it because I was only 65 miles east of London so we could go to concerts all the time if you named a band that played during the early 70s I probably saw them and there were some of them that I saw more than once and uh, so there were there were drugs but I never got seriously hooked on drugs um, I leaned more to alcohol, and 
that's a whole nother part of my story, but uh, we'll get to that later. But it was basically very boring to me. I was, when I was first in basic training, I was thoroughly harassed by my drill sergeant because he was from Alabama and I was from New York. Mm. And he disliked Yankees. I mean, seriously disliked Yankees. And he did not like me one bit. So it was, it was, it was stressful at times. You know, I was disheartened because I knew I had a decent education. I knew, uh, you know, what I could do. And it seemed like they put me in a slot where I was just a number, filling a hole, and didn't have to do really any real thinking at all. So there were other escapes and other things that I gravitated to. Yeah, I think when we know that we have <laughs> giftings and we feel like, you know, we all want to have purpose. And when we don't have a place to fulfill that, like you say, you'll gravitate to other things. And, mm-hmm. you know, you all were put in England in a time where things were pretty rowdy. And it was probably for a young man to not have the sense of purpose, yet have all this out here that's available, I'm sure that that added up to some pretty, I could only imagine, just Mm. a group of guys and, you know, in that scene. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that when your bout with alcohol, like Mm -hmm. that came later. So we know there, you you were drinking at that time and, you know, were able to go out into London and, and those places. How did that turn into an issue with alcohol? I never really thought it was an issue at that time. Um, It had been. But after I was discharged and came back, um, I went back to school again. I went in. That turned out very well. I went to a community college in uh, Canandaigua, New York, and, and I got my degree in ornamental horticulture, landscaping, architecture, and and I went right from there. In fact, I got out of school early. They let me go be, to fulfill a job that was at Cornell University. And, uh, and I went to a job that I worked with apple growers. And I don't know if anybody's ever heard of integrated pest management. It's where you, you don't just calendar spray your fruit. You look to see what needs to be sprayed. And we, we were the pilot program for the United States in that program. And I was one of the first two wow. trainees to go through that in New York. And uh, that just led to my career. Yeah. You know, because it, you just retired recently, right? I just read. I've been retired uh, one year. Yeah. One year and two days, as a matter of fact. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so that, uh, but the getting back to the alcohol, that really became a problem once I got out of the Air Force mm-hmm. and got back home. And it... Uh, I didn't think it was a problem. Um, I'm sure people around me knew it was a problem, but it's just the way it worked that when you're an alcoholic, you gravitate to people who do the same thing that you do. And that's the people that I hung out with. That's, that's what I did. And it seemed like a and, normal... And I had, you know, I had, when I got done with that, the pilot program with the, before I, I went to college and that, I had a whole summer to do nothing. I mean, the Air Force paid me um, unemployment, so I just had, I was living at home, and I could just do whatever I wanted to do, and I basically did. You know, yeah. I played golf and drank. That's yeah. about what I did for a summer. Yeah. And so how did you come to that point where you went, oh, maybe this is a problem? I think the point 
the realization came was after I was married. Mm-hmm. And I was just seeing the the tension and the, oh, disregard that I was having for my family. Mm-hmm. And it became a problem. And it yeah. became a problem. So how <clears throat> many years have you been sober? I, two weeks ago, I celebrated 17 years. That is something to give <laughs> a round of applause for coming from that place of, yeah, so I, yeah, it kind of takes me back too, you mm-hmm. know, and so that's great. Um, that is something to be celebrated because that's not an easy. No, I would not want to go through that again ever. And that is a fear. Yeah. But keeps us I from. Yeah, yeah, it just, you know, it, in beginning when I first started to get sober, the thing that helped me the most was a gentleman that I had previously drank with a lot and played golf with a lot was in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. And he grasped the hold of me, and he, he just wouldn't turn me loose. I mean, he, he did everything for me. I mean, he picked me up every day. And if I had an excuse that I didn't want to go with him, he said, you aren't doing anything else, get in the car. And that's what we did. You know? He was relentless. And- he, was, he was a, yeah, he was a hound. Yeah. And it was great. It was, you know, I'm indebted to him forever. For my life, I you know who knows where I'd be now. Yeah, you know, I don't think it'd have been pretty. And you know, sometimes that's the one thing that is hard for people to do is to be that relentless. But it's powerful. We can look back and see the people in our life that did that for us. Like God mm-hmm. sent them, you know, in a time where you needed someone who was relentless. Because you know, God has a plan for us, and it's hard to come out of those places of. Um, addiction and habits that aren't healthy, but you see things now you couldn't see then coming out of it, right? Correct. Um, yes. I know that you are uh, a big part of our Celebrate Recovery. You've been here and been a part. You help lead other guys um, on a weekly basis. And uh, had you not been through that, you wouldn't you wouldn't have the understanding of what it's like and have that compassion mm-hmm. for people um, and desire to help them out. And I think that's the beautiful thing of coming out of that isolation of addiction mm-hmm. and coming into community is all of a sudden we realize, well, hey, I could maybe do this for somebody else, what someone did for me. You can, I don't know if everybody can, but I can, uh, when I see somebody first come in to celebrate recovery who is in active addiction, you can see it in their eyes. And then after a period of time, I don't know how, whatever it is, You'll start to see a shining in their eyes, and there'll be a glint there. Mm-hmm. And then you know you, you, you're on the right track with them. Would you call that a glimmer of hope? I think so. I think so. You know, because I can recall, you know, just seeing people with, that just wouldn't even look you in the eye, wouldn't even ha- want to talk to you, you know, yeah. just so angry and, you know, and bitter. But then they start opening up and, you know, and... and it, their eyes just get a little bit of shine into them, yeah. and it gets brighter all the time. Yep. You know, sounds like the light bulb kind of comes. It, on. It, the Lord, I think, gives them a revelation that there's <laughs> hope and there's help <laughs> and there's healing, mm-hmm. and there's a future beyond mm-hmm. that mountain mm-hmm. that we go around um, every day when we're in active addiction. Um, seeing that there's another path, and seeing that there are people that are willing to be vulnerable and honest and share their story. And then we find out maybe we're not that much different from some other people in the room. And, you know, 
that's the thing that's really hard, I think, is when we first walk in, we just think nobody's going to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're usually, you know, we've been in denial for a while, right? And <laughs> there is this, when we come to this place, um, no matter what the habit that we have is, when we come to this place when we realize that it's maybe this is an issue, it's, it's a low point. And so we're walking into this, any place that you go, um, whatever 12-step or whatever group that you're in or it walking into counseling, and we feel like we're at this low point and will it ever be better? Mm-hmm. But as we gradually walk on the journey, the hope does come and <clears throat> someone comes along and speaks something into our lives that we cling to. You know, um, we don't understand the power of our words and... We've had Nathan on before, you know, and um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think about watching him come in and, and knowing, you know, just his demeanor was still that demeanor of the old life. But I remember walking up to him, and we've had him on and talked about this the day that I just spoke purpose, and I did that because somebody did it for me, mm-hmm. you know, and I knew how different that made my life. And to see <clears throat> the next week, he looked like a different person. Mm-hmm. Like he, he kind of stepped up to those words that were spoken over him. And so it sounds like you had that experience too with this gentleman that was relentless. And it's the things that make us perseverant in what we do. And so you have that piece <clears throat> of your life that you've given to God and he's given you victory in that. You went on, and I don't want to miss all the years that you worked with Apples because anytime I need to find out about an apple, I'm going to ask John. Um, I want to go back to, uh, because I think there's a lot of people that listen in the Valley that understand um, what you were talking about just briefly about apple trees and spraying them. I just, I want to go back to that for just a minute because I think it's so, you were a part of a pilot program. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a really big deal. Talk to us a little bit about that experience of being a part of that and the success of that. What did mm-hmm. that look like? It was basically there were uh, two leaders and two trainees, mm-hmm. and we had a uh, trailer with all of our instruments and everything that we needed um, up on the lake shore of Lake Ontario, right in the middle of an apple orchard, a uh, 400-acre apple orchard. We were right in the center of it. And, uh, and we contracted with different growers in that area, mm-hmm. and we had old army jeeps that they gave us and we drove around and drove through the orchards and looked for bugs and insects and you know we set up instruments in their orchards and took daily readings on them and were very close to the growers with what we were finding and and we made the recommendations of for them when to spray and what to spray with yeah and that completely changed the the outlook on on the spraying and taking care of orchards because growers would historically calendar spray. They would spray one day and then they would spray 10 days later unless it rained an awful lot and washed off. But they would spray 10 days later and they would do that from as soon as there were any green showing on the apple trees until about two weeks before they harvested them. Mm -hmm. And they would spray anywhere from... 18 to 20 sprays a year on their trees. And we got some guys down to 11, 12 sprays for the year. 
That's good for us. <laughs> and that was a uh, tremendous savings to them. Mm-hmm. But we proved to them that they could have the same quality fruit, which would be, you know, there's basically two kinds of fruit. There's fruit for the industry, for the processing industry to make applesauce and juice out of. And then there's the fresh eating stuff that goes to, that gets packed and goes to the supermarket for human consumption. You know, it's all for human consumption. But And we proved to them that they can make pretty apples on their apple trees for the consumer for the highest dollar return for them. Yeah. And I did that program for two years. And so that got you into the apple industry. Yes. Big time. Yes. And so you were you worked for Bowman, right? Yeah, that so was after I had after I got done with that pilot program, I moved back to my hometown in uh gentleman who I used to pheasant hunt on his apple orchards um, offered me a job as his farm manager. And he had uh, 400 acres of sweet cherries, sour cherries, mm-hmm. prunes, peaches, and apples and pears, and 40 acres of grapes. So I managed that farm for him and put that program that I had learned into his yeah. operation. And I did that for, what did I do that for? Seven years, eight years, with the purpose of I was going to buy him out and take over the farm. But when it got close to that point, that didn't happen because he wanted too much money for it. And I wasn't going to go into debt that far. So that's when I moved to Bowman's. Okay. Because the gentleman in my church that I had started going to was the general manager at Bowman's who had a plant in New York. Okay. So he offered me the job. To be the apple buyer for their company. Yeah. And so you've spent years traveling over the U.S. buying apples. and Yes. Uh, for Bowman's, which is really cool. Whenever I want to know what the new apple is on the market, I ask you, and I go to the grocery store and find them. It's the craziest <laughs> thing. Um, so what's your favorite apple? My favorite apple? It's an apple probably nobody's heard of unless they're from New York. It's a Macowan. It's a Macintosh-type apple, but it's much more crunchier, and it's a deep, dark purple color, and the flesh is pure white, but it's really, it's a snappy apple. Mm. It's only available for like two months between harvest time and Thanksgiving, maybe the first yeah. part of December. Yeah. My other favorite apple is Pink Ladies mm. are one of the, my favorites, because I, like, I don't like a sweet apple, which I found people in the valley like sweet apples. Mm. They like Golden Delicious, and I don't. I like apples that are a little bit tart. Yeah, I'm in your camp. I have uh, two questions. First of all, you mentioned about being from New York and growing up in New York and living in New York. How did you end up in the Shenandoah Valley um, from New York? And also, you know, recently you've been helping out through Hope Distributed um, minister and deliver food to veterans in our area. So if you want yes. to share about how you got involved with that also. Okay. Well, with my working with Bowman's, the uh, the plant that was up there was an old, old, old plant. I mean, it was uh, built in, I think, the early 1900s. In fact, they even had prisoners of war from World War II were mm-hmm. working in the factory wow. um, there. But it was old, and it, it needed some upgrades, a lot of upgrades. And Bowman's didn't want to spend that much money. Bowman's in Mount Jackson. So they closed that plant. I ran it for two years as just an apple storage facility because we could store 
about 600,000 bushels of apples in that storage. So then they decided to just close it, and, and they offered me a job to come down here because the apple buyer down here was getting up in age, and they knew they needed somebody to come into it. And it's, it's funny that uh, I moved down here in 2005, and that is the year I got sober. And so I've been here, as long as I've been sober, I've been in the valley. Wow. So that's um, easy for you to remember. Absolutely. It's not hard at all. But, uh, yeah, so I moved down here in 2005 and sold my house in New York and came down here and had to spend twice as much for a house for a half the size house because <laughs> that's, that's just what 2005 was. I yeah, mean, yeah. I traveled back and forth looking for houses, and I lost three houses just on the weekend. Well, I know that you've been involved in Celebrate Recovery and you've been a tremendous leader and asset, and I'm grateful that you're in the Valley. And then back, I guess it was before um, the pandemic, we had a, a meeting here at the church for uh, Nazarene pastors on the Virginia district. And we had a speaker, and he uh, was talking to us about who are the oppressed in your community. And it was something I really took to heart. And I've prayed about it. I've thought about it a lot since then. Um, he really challenged me that day. And one of the demographics in our community and are in most every community um, that I believe that are not taken care of maybe as good as they could be is veterans. And so um, back about, it hadn't been quite a year ago, I guess, we had a conversation about, well, what could we do? And I knew that Hope Distributed was actually providing food for some of the veterans. Uh, They were coming in, uh, they have someone come in each week and we would play Tetris trying to get all this food into this vehicle for the guy from the VA to take to all the veterans. So you said you'd be willing to help with that, and um, Dion Laux agreed to help you. And so you all have been doing this outreach to veterans over the past nine months maybe now and something like Mm -hmm. that. So tell us a little bit about that experience. That experience is very, very eye-opening to me. Me being a veteran, not a combat veteran, right? Um, it's it's just it's heartbreaking to see these gentlemen. That um, I mean, they to me they seem to be completely lost. Some of them, I mean, they're they're in a shell, they're isolated, and they just don't they just don't relate to society much. I mean, it's but there there is a need there for their nutrition, and because a lot of them don't have vehicles. I mean, they don't have any way to get anywhere, and they're just, they're so grateful for us, for what we do for them. Yeah. Um, It's, and they're getting, it's taken a long time because, you know, they're in a shell, and it's hard to get that turtle to get their head out Mm -hmm. of the shell to talk to you and look, you know, to look you in the eye and, and just talk to you, you know, and it's getting better all the time. I mean, it's. For us to relate to the gentlemen, you know, where we're seeing them every month, and and they know we're coming now, and it's just it's just gratifying. You yeah, know? I, it's I just remember the first couple of times <clears throat> I was able to go along with you guys, and man, to get them to open the door and look out was a big deal. Um, I, and I remember the one guy, but he was so grateful, like he did follow us out and thanked us and brought mm. us water, and um, continues to 
provide water for mm-hmm. whoever every brings week, you. every month every yeah. month he provides water and so that's been really um, a great way and our hopes are to be able to help more disabled veterans um, if there's a veteran listening today I would say hey check with hope distributed and see if there's a way that you could partner if you have a heart for that I think would be a, a really good way to um, give back to the community because just like you now help people in CR with something that you dealt with and God has given you victory over. We all have experiences that we can bring to the table to help other people. And I think you're right. We have to understand that the context, you don't understand combat. Dion does. That's where it's 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 great to have Dion with me. Yeah, Dion is, um, you all make a great team. But it takes, if we know we've been somewhere and we've found healing god it always has i think a plan i know a plan for us to share the hope that we found with others and to offer food and uh, whatever we can do to help make their life just a little bit better Um, it's a powerful thing well john thank you uh first of all for your service and uh, for all the many ways that you serve those, whether they're coming out of addiction or veterans who are in need of food and can't get it. Um, But also, thank you for joining us on today's broadcast of Hope Talks. It's been great to have you. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Hope Talks. We pray that as you've heard John Corser's testimony, that it truly has been a half hour of hope for your life. May God bless. Hope Talks is sponsored by Church of the Nazarene Harrisonburg in partnership with Sunshine Ministries. Thanks for listening to today's podcast of Hope Talks. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe for updates and the latest episodes. Also, if you're in the Harrisonburg, Rockingham County area, we invite you to listen on the radio each Sunday at noon on 1470 AM or 102.1 FM WBTX.